Here we are at episode 100 of the Biz Talk with Bill Roy podcast. This podcast was created because we want to provide you with some insight into the people, places, companies, organizations, and issues that are important to Wichita's business community. We hope we have fulfilled that promise to you over the last 100 episodes. Sheila Bear is a native Kansan and the former chair of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. She was in charge when the bottom dropped out of the economy. She was in town a week ago to talk to Juliet's Pearls Leadership Society, affiliated with the Girl Scouts. I had a chance to talk to Bear about her experiences during the economic meltdown of the Great Recession, working to try and find a way to save the U.S. economy. We also discussed her work on finding a solution to the student debt problem and about the economies of China and Europe. She offers great insight and opinions, and my discussion with former FDIC Chair Sheila Bear on episode 100 is coming up. First, a look at what's in your weekly edition of the Wichita Business Journal. The big story, explosive changes in the Wichita real estate industry. Reese Nichols has stormed into Wichita from Kansas City and collected a lot of talent from other companies as they build their Wichita presence. We talk to Reese Nichols' leaders, competitors, and we provide more information about this new company. Our coverage begins on page 18. Also this week, our Wichita is a good place to start a business feature, this time focusing on SCORE, Counselors to America's Small Business. We talk to a mentor and a Wichita starting a business who's glad she made the SCORE connection. Page 5. This week, we spend 10 minutes with Tony Utter. He's the new Vice President and Commercial General Manager at J.P. Wygand & Sons Real Estate. That's on page 31. This week's top 25 list, Wichita Area Golf Courses, ranked by USGA Slope Rating. That begins on page 10. If you're looking for business, you're looking for business leads, and we have them. Who's setting up a new corporation? Who owes back taxes? New real estate deals, building permits, court judgments. We collect it so you can use it. Starts this week on page 28. Back to talk to former FDIC Chair Sheila Bear in a moment. Welcome to Biz Talk with Bill Roy of the Wichita Business Journal. Talking business, your business that is, is what Equity Bank's team of bankers does best. Visit us today at equitybank.com. Sheila Bear grew up in Independence, Kansas, went to KU, KU Law. She worked in the U.S. Department of the Treasury, went into academia, then in 2006 was appointed by President George W. Bush as the 19th chair of the FDIC. She was in charge and helped steer the U.S. through the greatest economic downturn since the Great Depression. Twice she was named by Forbes magazine the second most powerful woman in the world. She wrote a book about her experience during the Great Recession called Bull by the Horn. She's also written children's books about that time in history. Bear is a former Girl Scout and spoke recently to the organization's Juliet's Pearls Leadership Society. Sheila Bear, welcome back to Kansas. Thank you. Thank Happy you for to be being here. here. Yeah. Tell us about what you're doing in, in Wichita. Well, I'm, I'm speaking to the Girl Scouts. Um, we're having a luncheon event uh, today, and then I'm going to get together with some of the young ladies uh, tomorrow and read uh, a couple of my children's books and talk with them. So talk really about looking your, forward to it. Talk about your message for these women. Yeah. Um, and you can call them girls. <laughs> <laughs> girl Scouts. I think, I think girls is a very good word. I'm glad the Girl Scouts kept it. I think uh, being a girl is very empowering, and, and certainly... Um, uh, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I was proud to be a girl. I'm still proud. I guess I'm an old girl now, but I'm, I'm still proud of it. So I think it's uh, that that may be consistent with the message is that, uh, you know, you can uh, 
be a leader. You can make your impact. Uh, you can walk through just about any door you want to these days. There will be more obstacles, perhaps, because of your gender, but it's a lot more opportunity uh, to fight your way through. And, um, you know, the Girl Scouts will teach you really important skills. I was just thinking back when I was thinking about what I wanted to say at lunch and, you know, all the things I learned from Girl Scouts. Um, back when I was in Girl Scouts, that was before Title IX. And so right. boys typically learned, you know, teamwork and camaraderie through the sports. But Girl Scouts really was where, where uh, young women uh, were able to, to accomplish, uh, garner those skills. Right. And just, you know, basic things like selling cookies. You know, you learn, you learn money, you learn making change, you learn right. sales, you learn marketing, you learn inventory management, you learn profit. Uh, so uh, all those things are kind of basic to help me later in life when I went into financial services. So uh, I think it's, you know, uh, good for you for being a Girl Scout. You're, they're going to give you a lot of good tools that are going to serve you later in life. And be assertive. Uh, be a leader. Uh, go out and take some risks. Don't be shy. Don't be bashful. You're a girl. And uh, Do you remember and the first time? a lot of promise in front of you. Do you remember the first time you felt like a leader? Yeah. Boy, that's an interesting question. Well, I guess my first, my first uh, foray at running for office was in the seventh grade when I was elected president. Was it president or vice president of my class? I have to go back and look at my yearbook now. Whatever I was ran for, I won. I we'll remember that. We'll check the CV Yeah, that's that. right. Yeah, of course, somebody's <laughs> going to look it up now. That's right. Um, so, uh, you know, and I enjoyed that. And um, leadership has got some cost, too. You have to really put yourself out there to sure. scrutiny and second-guessing. A lot of responsibility, too. If you're, you're leading people, are you leading them in the right direction? When you succeed, you've got to make sure... They have confidence in you uh, in terms of the objectives uh, of, that you've set out, uh, but also that, that you serve them well. You have a responsibility to the people you lead. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, it's something I've, uh, I've, I've forayed in now and then throughout my life and have been fortunate to have opportunities to exercise leadership in a way that I, I think has been impactful for, for people, especially during the financial crisis. Talk about responsibility. Yeah. You're in 2006 appointed by President Bush. Right to be chair of the FDIC. Take us up to that point where things started happening right. for the Great Recession, what we now right. know as the Great yeah. Recession. Yeah. What was your first oh no moment? Oh no moment. And what were you seeing? Yeah, so that's, that's an interesting question. You know, I joke that I need to stay out of government because every time I go in, something bad happens. <laughs> uh, the, the Bush administration also had asked me to go to Treasury, uh, to be the Assistant Secretary for Financial Institutions at Treasury, where they, I had young children at home, and they built it as a nine-to-five job, said, okay, this will be work-life balance. And, of course, we had 9-11, horrific, uh, horrific uh, crisis for us, and then the, the Enron failure. And then, of course, then I, so I go to academia to try to get away from that kind of job, and I get back right into the soup with the FDIC. Right. So I was um, actually, when I was at Treasury in 2001 and 2002, I was actually looking at these issues then, though it was more from a consumer protection perspective. Right. We were seeing pockets. Baltimore was one area where these kind of fly-by-night lenders would go into um, neighborhoods. They would troll for homes that had equity, but also had people with, with uh, dinged up credit histories, right? right? So suggesting a little lack of financial sophistication, but equity in their homes. So they would push market these loans. They were hideous loans, uh, big, steep uh, interest rate uh, resets, something called negative amortization, which meant that your payment didn't even pay down your principal. Your loan balance was actually getting bigger as you pay them. Very complex. And so we kind of tried to tackle it then. Without much success, there was a lot of political push-out. Again, already a lot of big financial firms were starting to make a lot of money off right. of this. I went to academia for four years at the University of Massachusetts, 
kind of got out of that space, then came back in in 2006. And to their credit, the FDIC staff were already on top of this. They had been monitoring it closely. Uh, I was worried because of this past history I'd had working on the issue at Treasury because the, the, what we considered kind of marginal, you know, perimeter players doing this, marginal lenders doing this, it really gone mainstream. Everybody was doing it now and they were being securitized and sold off and that was part of the problem. Nobody was taking the risk that the mortgages would not uh, perform, that the borrowers would not repay. Right. So we went out and bought a database, but that was probably my, my big aha moment. We got the data, we analyzed it, we thought, oh my God, it was like, you know, no income documentation, very little down payments, steep payment resets, uh, very fishy appraisals, you know, the, the whole nine yards. It was just, a, 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 you know, a cacophony of, of terror right, <laughs> when you looked at these right. things. And so that I think that was really my aha moment, and we really needed to get on the stick because even then, that was by the end of 2006. You could see the housing market was starting to soften already, right. and we started to, we started speaking out uh, very quickly for mortgage lending standards. But just you know, government just takes so long. Right. It was really until the summer of 2007 before we got something in place, and even that was just for banks. It wasn't for these non-bank lenders. So when you started seeing the dominoes right. falling, what's going through your mind at that point? Well, a concern, but I, I think, you know, we tried to proactively do something about it instead of wringing our hands or saying, oh, this is just a hundred-year flood, we're going to put up with it. We uh, we tried to get ahead of it, and uh, in, in the spring of 2007, before it was really, it, 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 was, it was getting bad, but it wasn't at crisis proportions yet, we convened uh, mortgage servicers and lenders and investors and other government agencies, the IRS, this whole big group to try to figure out a strategy to get these loans restructured. It was complicated because they were in securitizations trust, right? right? So millions of investors owned these mortgages. It wasn't like a bank that had the mortgage in in, um, in its portfolio. But we, we got some good agreements and a framework for, for getting the loans uh, modified. And we thought we had voluntary buy-in from all the key parties to get that done. And then, uh, so that was our first effort to try to get the loans restructured, because at that point, that was that was the best solution. That was really the only solution we had. Right. And again, we thought we had buy-in, and by the fall of 2007, uh, uh, actually, uh, uh, Moody Analytics did a study, and, a straight, you know, just a handful of mortgages were getting modified. Most of them were going straight into foreclosure, which right. was exactly what we didn't want to do, because that was going to, you know, put more home pressure on home prices. Right. So at that point, I started going public. I wrote an op-ed in, in uh, the New York Times calling for loan modifications. The Hill got more involved. Chris Dodd uh, exercised tremendous leadership. Hank Paulson finally stepped in, and we were able to get a little more traction. So the good news is we did save several hundred thousand homes, I think, through those efforts. The bad news is it should have been a lot more. Right. So you're working with Secretary Paulson, right. Fed Chair Bernanke. Right. Uh, Tim Geithner right. was in there as right. well. Right. Talk to me about those efforts, those ways to find a solution in those discussions. Yeah. Um, well, it was hard. I, I think uh, Hank Paulson and I were probably more aligned than, than I was with, with the other two. Tim, you know, <laughs> had some very public disagreements. <laughs> ben and I had a good working relationship, but, but you know, Ben and Tim, Ben and Tim were kind of aligned on policy because that was kind of the Fed view, and Tim was heavily influential in all of this. So um, it, it was uh, tough. There was a lot of give and take. There was a lot of tension. Uh, but we, we did what we had to do. We made decisions. We compromised. Uh, I held my nose in a lot of it. I think we all did. I just, <laughs> right. you know, it was, these bailouts were were uh, not optimal. But of, of the options we had, I think we probably picked, um, for the most part, uh, the best of the time. 
but I, I caveat that because I think we did have an opportunity with Citigroup to do some restructuring there, which we did not do, and impose a little more accountability. And we clearly could have done a lot more in, in trying to, to save homes with through loan modifications. What was it like getting all those? We, we, we've seen it. You've talked about it. We've seen it in movies even right, after, right. after everything happened. Getting all those bank CEOs, yeah. uh, uh, everybody in a room, yeah. <laughs> and telling them what, well, that what needed to happen. That actually wasn't hard. A lot of them are pretty, uh, pretty uh, I think, were, were, were anxious themselves. Right. Um, you know, and when, and when the when the Fed and the Treasury and the FDIC ask you to meet, you're going to go to the meeting, right? right. I mean, so that's not, they don't, they understood they needed to be there. Um, it, it was uh, uh, an interesting meeting. Uh, there was clearly some banks there that needed the assistance a lot. There were others that I questioned really needed it. And um, so, you know, but they felt, I think the thinking at the time, I'm not sure I'd agree with it, but thinking at the time was, well, if we just bail out Citigroup or B of A that had bought Merrill Lynch and that was kind of a mess, that uh, we're going to tag them and then the market's really going to run from them. So everybody got bailed out. And uh, whether it was the right decision, I don't know. Uh, but again, uh, based on the, the tools we had, and, and for the most part, except for Wells Fargo uh, people, and then, you know, Dick Kovacevic uh, ran the bank at that. Uh, they ended up um, acquiescing as well. And, uh, you know, I think some of the reluctance was that the banks who thought they could get through without this right. was that there would be a public backlash, and and that was right, and there should have been, right, <laughs> because right. it just wasn't right what was the millions of homes lost and jobs lost that right. these banks were getting so much assistance. But I, I think it, it, both with the, the power of the agencies, the mind of the meeting, and, and the uh, distressed financial condition we were in, they, they knew they had to be there. Looking back, anything you'd yeah. do different? Yeah, um, I get asked that question a lot. So I, I think one thing that uh, are the IndyMac bank failure. Um, there was a misstep there, which we quickly corrected. Uh, but we, uh, at the behest of the the primary regulator, which was the Office of Thrift Supervision at the time. We, uh, we agreed um, to, they were the ones that actually, when a bank failed, the primary regular actually closed the bank and then appointed us receiver and we came in. That's how the process worked. Right. So they wanted to close the bank uh, before closing hours because it was a West Coast bank, but they didn't want to have to be too late at night when they notified everybody on the East Coast right. on the Hill and in the White House that needed to be notified. So I challenged that a bit. We went ahead and, and, and did it anyway, and it was, a, it was just the wrong decision because people, it was a Friday afternoon, people came to the bank. Right. And they wanted their money, and they had a transaction, and the bank was closed. And so it, 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 uh, it, there was a lot of alarm. CNN was there. There were people lined up. We quickly recouped. We, we rented some offices. We were able to get people in the air-conditioned offices to sit down with them and help them. Everybody's money was safe. Their insured money was safe. That right. was the irony of it. There was a warrant run after the bank was closed and the FDIC was in charge. It was probably the, if you had insured money, it was the safest place in the world to right. have your money. So uh, we never did that again. Uh, it was after closing hours uh, from then on, and uh, and so I do regret that. But again, we, we quickly recouped, and uh, and uh, things went very very smoothly after that. I think more generally, um, you know, I, I still uh, troubles me that we haven't been, we weren't able to do more in home homeownership preservation. I think back a lot. You know, could I've where were the other pressure points I could have used? What what more could I've done? I do think. The tools that the FDIC had directly at its disposal, we, we made the most of our tools, right. and then the rest of it was just moral suasion with the other regulators and, and the, the public bully pulpit. But but that still haunts me. Could right. we have done more? Um, because the economic devastation was, was tremendous. 
And there's a, there's a wonderful book called House of Death that really talks about why we had this, this terrible, deep economic recession. And kind of the, the conventional wisdom or, or one narrative which helps justify the bailouts is, well, it was the banks were undercapitalized, which they were, and they were pulling back on credit. And that was the reason for the recession. Right. So if we put a lot more money in the banks, that's going to take care of that. Well, guess what? We put a lot of more money in the banks, but they didn't really start lending exactly. more. Yeah. Uh, and then what really killed the economy, though, was the lack of the hit to consumer spending. Home equity had been a driver of consumer spending. Uh, people lost their home equity, were losing their homes, were fighting to keep their homes, spending all their money on their mortgage payments, which had become much higher through these resets, killing spending in other areas. And that's really what hit the economy. Right. And so, you know, I still, I got so much uh, pushback when we were pushing for loan modifications. You know, we were helping the deadbeats, and these people never should have had these mortgages. and. Believe me, there were some unsympathetic borrowers out right. there. No, there were real estate professionals, flippers, and who cared about them? I was focused on families in their homes right. that, that wanted to keep them. But but we could and should have done more, not just to help them, but the broader economy, because right. this really took a tremendous toll. Can it happen again? Well, probably not in the mortgage market. I think the thing I worried about now is something called leverage lending. Right. So these are this is about a $1.3 trillion market, which ironically was about the same size as the subprime mortgage market. Right. Um, Banks make some of them. Non-bank lenders make a lot of them. They're made to very risky borrowers. Borrowers already have a debt, a lot of leverage already. Uh, they're called covenant lie, which basically means you know very very little, uh, very weak underwriting. And uh, and then like subprime mortgages, they're packaged up and sold off to investors. And same investors, pension plans, insurance companies, asset managers. So we're hearing the same thing from banks now. We don't make a lot of these. They're being sold off to investors. We're not holding the risk. Right. And I just, you know, you know, there's no way, if we learn anything, there's no way you can insulate the banking system from, from these. It's going to come back. Right. And, and I'm concerned that this could have a more direct impact on the economy because these borrowers, these highly leveraged corporate borrowers, you know, these are household names like CVS. I mean, these are not, <laughs> right. these are not little small businesses on the corner. Right. If they get into trouble, if they can't, you know, if they go bankrupt or they can't access credit anymore, millions of jobs could be on the line. And so as we were trying to think early with, with mortgage borrowers in 2007, what's going to happen with them? How can we mitigate the impact? Right. I wish somebody was thinking now about, well, how about these corporate borrowers that right. are also going to get into trouble? Right. And what's the game plan with them to protect the people that, that they employ? You made the distinction recently between stupid right. and criminal. Right, right. When you talk about accountability <laughs> yeah. for what happened. Right, yeah. Uh, I talk do, about I do. that a little bit. That was so that, that show on Maria Bartiromo. I right. here. That, was, that was funny she picked up on that. I think actually... I said they did stupid things, but as, as Forrest Gump said, you know, stupid is as stupid does, so right. maybe they were stupid. A lot of people were stupid. Um, so, you know, uh, stupidity's not criminal and greed's not criminal. Right. And uh, But I, I think the larger issue really was there wasn't a lot of accountability either in terms of people losing their jobs, um, ha having financial consequences, civil monetary right. penalties, not criminal uh, actions. There wasn't a lot of that either. Right. So I, I think if we'd had more, and I do think if, if we had really taken one of those big banks and put them into a receivership type, type process once the system had been stabled and restructured them and got rid of all the management and boards, I think people would have felt better about it. And I think that would have probably had a bigger impact than all these thousands of pages of regulations we've written right, now. Right. That would have sent a powerful market signal. You know, this is what's going to happen to right. you. Yeah. We, we talked to bankers during that time, right. a little bit right. afterwards, obviously. Right. 
more increased pressure on them in yeah. community banks around right. around Wichita yeah. and Kansas. Yeah. Um, and, and they they re- regretted that because the big banks were the ones who made the oh, stupid yeah. decisions, yeah, no, yeah, and then is, yeah. they're the ones who have to have more oversight. Well, more it's pressure. true. You know, I, I don't. Uh, this was not regional banks and community banks were not. There, there, so there's some thrifts, right? Right. Could, there's some community thrifts that were doing this. Some of the larger, you know, Inimac, Wamu. Um, uh, Golden West, which was bought by Wachovia, they they were part of the problem. But for the most part, the, the you know the the commercial banks, regional and community level, yeah, they weren't involved in this. Right. Um, they were hurt by it because their their business was being cannibalized by these fly by night lenders, who were getting funding from the very big banks on Wall Street. Right. So they were they were very much hurt by this, and and they should not have gotten caught in any kind of regulatory trap after this. But the regulators cast the net far too wide. I, I was generally supportive of, of Mr. Crapo's bill that went through um, in the last Congress to, uh, <clears throat> to read some regulation on the community banks and the regional banks. But unfortunately, you know, the big banks always have to have their pound of flesh, so they, they slipped a couple of provisions in there, too, to weaken right. capital and liquidity requirements to the very largest banks as well. And I thought that was unfortunate. You're spending a lot of your time and, and some of the appearances I've seen right. uh, on national uh, networks talking about higher education, student debt. Right, right. Uh, talk about your efforts there and, and something that's interesting to me, income share agreements. Right, yeah. Well, the student debt <coughs> system is really, uh, really a mess. Uh, we've got about $1.5 trillion now right. in student debt. Most of that is made by the government. I think people think, well, the banks are doing this too. Well, actually, we can let the banks off the hook on this one. About right. $100 billion is banks. The rest is, you know, what that $1.4 about is, is the government. And it is a mess. A classic, you know, good intentions gone awry. Right. Um, the economic incentives are horribly misaligned, and there have been a lot of uses uh, with for-profits, but there's some non-profits, too, that have really reaped a lot of benefits of loan proceeds without providing much good education right. for kids. And part of the reason is uh, misaligned economic incentives. So the loan proceeds go to the school. The risk of repayments on the student, if the payment defaults, it's on the taxpayer, but right. they've got no skin in the game at all. So it's just the way the system is built. Of course, the incentives are going to be to raise tuition and, and maximize your your, uh, your your revenue there. So uh, with income share, it's, it's a much better for the student, and it's a much better alignment of economic incentives. With income share, it's not debt. There's no principal. There's no interest. It's a contract between the student and the provider. To, for the student after he or she graduates to pay a certain affordable percentage of their disposable income over a, a certain period of years up to a cap, and then you're done. And so students who get really good jobs, you know, engineers, hedge fund managers, whatever, they're going to pay more right. than, than what they originally, what was originally financed. And the social worker, the high school math teacher will probably pay less. But, you know, we need all those people, and everybody's got an affordable payment. It's kind of like a flat tax, right? right? right. So everybody says, pays the same percentage. It's just if you make more, you're going to pay more. But it's built on success. And when, if you, when you require the college to provide some portion of the funding, they're on the hook, too. So if that student doesn't graduate or, or doesn't get a good job, they will not provide much in the way of return to allow the college to recoup their cost. If they, if they do well, they, they will generate revenues that can be plowed into more income share agreements. So I think it's a very uh, elegant solution to make colleges more aware of, of the need for the education to have value and to, and to help the student find a job. 
when they graduate. Um, and it's been tried, Purdue's really uh, pioneered this in Indiana. There are about a dozen or so colleges that are doing it now. Actually, it, it's, it's a rapidly growing number. A lot of coding schools that don't qualify for student um, federal student aid are using it. Schools are also using it for uh, undocumented immigrants, dreamers um, who don't qualify for for uh, for federal aid. Right. But I think it's a tremendously promising approach. I would like to see the government move to that. Um, but so far, like everything in Washington, nothing seems to get fixed, including including student debt. <laughs> the, the turning of the ship is right, very right, slow, right, isn't right, it? Exactly. Uh, what pr- would prevent us from moving in that direction? Other than yeah. other than that, would are our colleges and universities open to those ideas? I don't ideas? know. I, I think it's growing. I, I hope that, you know. Look, I, I you know I used to be in academia. I taught. I was a college president for a couple of years. I think that. Um, Higher education is is really got their back up, and they they continue to defend the indefensible. Right, and I think they would do so much better by acknowledging we've got a problem. I want we want to work with with Washington and the Department of Education to find the solution. And here again, I think income share is a great inch because a lot of them are doing it on their own already as, right. as an alternative to high cost debt. So um, you know, I, th- I I'm hoping they will shift. But yeah, that has been a resistance point. And then, ironically, I think there's a you know there's some uh, members who really want free education, and I think that's got some upsides and downsides. But I think there's some that fear if you do ISAs, then it'll somehow undermine the effort for for free college education. Right. So, I don't think they're they're inconsistent. I, I think there are problems with the free education, uh, but so that's one strain of thought. And then, ironically, some of my conservative friends say, well, they don't think the engineer should pay more than the you know the high school math teacher. And I said. Right. Well, it is like a flat tax. You're like a flat tax, <laughs> right? So what's uh-huh. wrong with that? So anyway, I think more education, more more persuasion. Hopefully, we can get some traction on it. Yeah. Talk about China. Yeah. China obviously yeah. Uh, important. Whatever happens yeah. there has an <laughs> yeah, impact yeah, here, yeah, vice yeah, versa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk about the China and, and well, their economy. Yeah. Well, um, so I think that it's slowing. Uh, it's still, uh, you know, robust growth compared to what you know a developed economy like ours would have. It's still north of six percent. They have a lot of debt, especially in the corporate space. I mean, the difference in China, uh, you know, the good news and the bad news is it's a socialized system. So the government controls a lot of these corporations that have a lot of debt. So um, that's been resulted in a very inefficient allocation of resources because it's the state-directed lending just does not have a good track record anywhere, really. And so you have a lot of... um, inefficient as what they call them SOEs uh, that have this debt o- overload so that's the bad news is but because the government does own it they can kind of control how and when if they default you know when that happens how it happens how bad it is so it won't wouldn't be the kind of shock that you might see here in the US or right. with with our corporate debt which is which is privately held and you know there's again, so God forbid another bailout right. uh, where there's there could be a more um, market disruption um, so I, I think it's important we get this trade deal done. I, you know, um, the, the Trump administration's raised some very good issues. I don't think tariffs are a good way uh, to, to – uh, I, I think you want to open markets, you don't want to close them. And right. so I think that's, you know, uh, that's really the focus. But it sounds like they're they're getting there. And um, But it, it is uh, – the IMF really recently came out with a, another report where they significantly lowered their world um, economic growth projections, and the big reason is trade. And, and that's that's political, really. That's not right. really economic. That That's political. So uh, I think it's important that they get it worked out, and hopefully the leaders of both countries will understand it's in their mutual benefit to do so. Any other areas around the world you're concerned about? 
Well, Europe is always, you know, they just don't seem to be able to work their way out of their problems. Right. Um, Brexit is, is an obvious one. I, uh, I look at that and I'm just dismayed. I, I've always uh, respected uh, Britain's parliamentary system and government leadership, and they're they're really uh, struggling. I have, as a woman, and since we're here at the Girl Scouts conference, I can't help but think part of the issue is, you know, I I sympathize with Theresa May. I, not that she's been perfect in how she's handled this. Not that her plan is perfect, but she got a plan. She has a plan. Smart people I know who have looked at it and, and understand these issues say they think it's a reasonably good plan. A lot of the people, mostly men, I'm sorry, who are carping at her right now don't have a plan, you know. And I just wonder to what extent part of this is, you know, it's still we have this cultural bias against being led by a woman. And, you know, is that, I'm sorry, but if she was a man, would she have just been able to, to drive this through? And right. they don't give her the benefit of the doubt the way they might a male colleague. So um, my heart goes out to her. And uh, But I think it's uh, she's trying to do the right thing for her country. And it's, it's dismaying that... Again, you got a lot of finger pointing, but not a lot of other people stepping up to the plate with with something better if they have it. You had a lot of heavy times, a lot of heavy responsibilities. Yeah. Yeah. Are you enjoying yourself now? Uh, yeah, I am. I'm doing some board work. I'm doing some advisory work. Um, I, I'm still active with the Systemic Risk Council, which is a group. Uh, I found the founding chair of it uh, that I started when I was at Pew. That has got a great group. Paul Volcker, Jean Claude Trichet used to be the head of the. European Central Bank, um, Bill Donaldson, Brooksley Bourne, a great stellar list of people. And we, we weigh in on financial reform issues. We try to give a public voice to regulatory initiatives because there's just so much industry lobbying. So we try to counter that a bit. Um, I'm, I'm also a founding board member of the Volcker Alliance, which is dedicated to more effective professional government, which we need right now. We you need bet. to uh, reinforce and support and bolster, you know, the uh, the quality and training and opportunities for government officials. So it's it's a nice mix of things to keep me busy. Yeah. Sheila Bear, former chair of the FDIC, thanks for spending some time with us. Welcome back to Kansas. Thank you. And uh, thank you for being our guest on episode 100 of the podcast. Yes, Appreciate indeed. it. Happy to be here. Thanks. At Equity Bank, stories of growing businesses are a favorite of ours, so we created our own little series called Napkin Stories. Visit EquityBank.com to see how some great businesses got their start. Well, that's it for Biz Talk with Bill Roy this week. We've made it to episode 100. Check out all our episodes at our Biz Talk with Bill Roy hub. It's at wichitabusinessjournal.com. My thanks once again to the Girl Scouts of Kansas Heartland and to Sheila Bear. Thank you 100 times over for listening and subscribing. Biz Talk with Bill Roy is a production of the Wichita Business Journal. Thanks to producer Brittany Showalter. And thanks very much to our sponsor, week in and week out, Brad Elliott and his team at Equity Bank. Have a profitable week.